it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today we have episode 217, and we're going to go back and answer some great listener questions we got recently. So without any further ado, I'll go ahead and read the first question. So I have Andrew and Dave. I recently opened up a Roth IRA through Fidelity. Is the investing strategy any different with a Roth than it is with buying stocks with an individual brokerage account? Appreciate your thoughts. P.S. Dave, I'm a big baseball fan and ex-player myself, so keep crushing the baseball analogies. Absolutely will do. Uh, thank you for the softball pitch, and we're going to attempt to hit this baby out of the park. So, <laughs> uh, with that, yeah. So, Andrew, what are your thoughts on the great question about the Roth IRA? A little off-season fun. The strategy part. So, like the logistics-wise, the short answer is there's not much difference. Maybe more of the long answer. There's a little bit of taxes, but you get if you're using a reputable U.S. broker. One of the big names, Fidelity, Schwab, Merrill, anybody like that, they will send you the forms automatically and you can just forward those to your tax account and put it on TurboTax, whatever. So in that regard, the logistics of Roth versus a regular brokerage account are not all that different. Like I said, the taxes are different. And so there are some people who will look at the differences in taxes and kind of use that to their investing strategy. And I think that can be smart in certain situations, and it really depends on yourself. So one idea of that could be if you have stocks that you're buying that do not pay a dividend, then you put those in your regular brokerage account. And if you have stocks that do pay a dividend, you put them in your Roth. The reason for that is the dividend tax, you don't have to pay taxes on your Roth. So any taxes from dividends, you won't have to pay on those stocks that pay a dividend. 
So that's one idea. But if you buy a stock in your individual account, and let's say it's like the next Amazon and it 10Xs, well, whenever you sell, eventually, you're going to have to pay huge taxes on those capital gains. Whereas if it was in a Roth, your 10X, your 10 bagger, another baseball term, yeah. would not be taxed on the capital gains. So kind of two things to keep in mind there. I mean, for me personally, I more look at like, what is this stock going to do for me? But I don't change the strategy necessarily based on individual or Roth too much. So when you buy a stock, does it matter what kind of stock? You can literally buy, you can buy Google for each type of account, correct? Yeah. Okay. So I think I was wondering if that was part of the question is, do you you have to buy different kinds of companies to invest in the different brokerage accounts? And you don't. Yeah, you really don't. Yeah. That makes it a lot easier. And like Andrew said, the any reputable brokerage account will take care of the tax part of it for you. And like he said, at the end of the year, they'll send you the information and you can forward it to QuickBooks or anybody, TurboTax, anybody that you use to do your taxes, and it makes it so much easier. Uh, back in the old days, <laughs> uh, you didn't have that advantage, but now you definitely do. And like Andrew said, there are different kinds of tax strategies that you can enact to help reduce the impact of taxes over time. But if those are things that you're interested in, I would strongly encourage you to talk to a tax professional to get some guidance on what's going to work best for you because everybody's situation is a little bit different. And depending also on your age and where you kind of are in your retirement plan, that could have an impact as well on what kinds of taxes you're trying to avoid and how you're trying to avoid them. And for those of you who are a little bit unfamiliar with what we're talking about, a Roth IRA is a type of brokerage account or retirement account that basically says you don't have to pay the taxes. You pay the taxes now. You don't have to pay the taxes later. Whereas a traditional IRA is you don't pay the taxes now, but you pay the taxes later. And a couple of the benefits of those types of accounts, a traditional will reduce your tax load now. So just easy numbers. Let's say that you invest $5,000 in your traditional IRA for the tax year. That means when you go to pay your taxes, you will pay, you will only have to report $45,000 in income as opposed to the 50,000 because you've had the traditional and that reduces your taxable income for that particular year. However, at the end of the term, uh, I believe it's when you start to turn 68, 70, I'm blanking on the exact numbers, but you have to start taking required distributions at that point. And when you do that, then they will tax you on any money that you have in the account. So there is it's kind of a quid pro quo. The government scratches your back early. At the end, you scratch their back. And with the Roth IRA, it worked kind of the opposite. So if you make 50K and you invest $5,000, there's no tax, there's no upfront tax benefit at that time. You pay the taxes on the 50,000 that you earn for the year and the money that you put in the account is tax free. So in other words, at the end of the time that you want to start withdrawing that money to go live on the beach and enjoy your pina coladas, then at that time you won't pay any taxes on the money that's in the account. So that's in essence how both of those accounts work. And when you work with brokerage accounts, whether you work with brokerage accounts or savings accounts or CDs, the rules, they're all the same and it all applies and it helps make it a little bit easier when you're trying to set up the accounts. But again, depending on what your income is and also depending on what your tax situation is and where you are in your retirement plan is a good idea to talk to a tax professional and get some a little bit of guidance on maybe some ways that you could help minimize some of those effects of taxes, especially if you have a traditional IRA. The same rules apply 
by the way, if you have a 401k. So you have the ability to do a Roth or traditional IRA with your 401k as well. So those are all things to keep in mind when you're trying to work on all that stuff. Okay. Andrew, did you have any other thoughts you wanted to talk about the great question about the Roth IRA? No, I think that's you covered it really well. Okay. All right. Let's go ahead and move on. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. To the next question we have. So, uh, hey, Andrew, new listener of the podcast. I have really learned a lot in the past two weeks after kind of skipping around a bit and listening to the episodes that I believe are most applicable to me. Thanks a bunch for the tips. I'm a new investor since I am fresh out of college and just got my first job. Since I am so young, I'm playing the long game, and I had a couple questions about a couple aspects of investing. In a recent episode, you talked about carbon credits, and I was a bit confused about what those actually are and how to invest in them. I assume they are not concrete, but do they just refer to companies whose main goal is to help with carbon emissions or companies who are investing in making themselves more emission-friendly, regardless of what the industry they're in? So that's the first part of the question. So let's go ahead and, I guess, tackle that part of it. Andrew, what are your thoughts on that first part of the question? Well, I know we did that interview with Marin Katusa. He was the one who presented this carbon credits idea. Mm -hmm. Great episode. Uh, He's a very smart guy. 
we recorded it back in August of last year. So go check that out. But you've kind of been going down this energy rabbit hole a lot lately. So I feel like maybe you should be, you should lead the answer to this and I can give a couple thoughts. Okay. So I've been working over the last couple months or a couple weeks, I guess, actually. I've been thinking a lot about what kinds of things I want to start, I guess, investigating and learning more about. And energy is something that's kind of interested in me for a long time. And about a year ago, I did some work on trying to learn more about batteries in particular and solar energy a little bit. And so I thought maybe I would kind of revisit that since it's been about a year or so. And at the time, I wasn't really able to find anything that I felt like was good investment options, or at least that would fit the criteria that Andrew and I try to teach. And so I did some preliminary work and I discovered a few things. So a couple of things just throw at you a little interesting tidbit. The electrical grid that we all use to power everything, it's an on-demand energy resource. And what that means is every time we turn on a light switch, the power that we need is now available. It's not sitting there waiting for you to turn on that light switch in your bedroom or to turn on your computer as you're trying to watch something on YouTube. It's all on demand. And so that kind of blew my mind a little bit. And so there really is, at this point, there is really no backup energy storage for the way that we use our power. And the majority of the power that is used right now is actually between five o'clock and seven o'clock at night. And so therein lies a couple of the problems that we're seeing with some of the renewable energy. So there's a couple things that are kind of going on. So first of all, the energy storage situation right now with solar in particular is not where it needs to be, at least on a grid level. On a personal home level, it's probably in a better situation, but on a personal level or on a grid level, it's not there yet. We don't have the ability to store the energy that is created from the sun when the sun is out. And so therein lies one of the problems is that at five o'clock and seven o'clock at between five and seven at night, especially now, especially here in the, in the Midwest, it's dark. And so there's no sun energy. We're not getting any energy from the sun. And so when I need to boot up my computer to watch Netflix or whatever it is, I need another source of energy. And of course, there is hydro and there is wind, and those do obviously work in the off-sunlight hours. But again, there is, depending on where you are in the country, you may not have access to that. And so that's why there is some I guess, hiccups with what's going on with energy creation and moving to renewables as quickly as maybe the politicians and some of the media would like us to get there. We're technologically, we're just not there yet. So what's happening is, is that we have to rely on other forms of energy that are not as clean and are not as politically friendly, i.e. natural gas and coal in particular. Now, depending on where you live in different parts of the country, there may be parts of the country that may use more coal to make up for that shortfall than natural gas or other resources. So currently right now across the United States, and don't hold my feet to the fire on the exact percentages, but around 30 to 40% of all the energy that's produced right now is natural gas. Depending on the part of the country, it's 15 to 20% coal. And then there's a, a you know about 15 to 20% of the nuclear and then the rest, it will be filled in with renewables of a variety of sources, whether it's wind, solar, or hydro. And again, depending on what part of the country you live in, those percentages may be a little bit different here or there. Another interesting tidbit, Next Era Energy, a company based out of Florida, which is a utility, they are the largest producer of renewable energy right now. But even they 
who are the largest producers of renewable energy are getting almost 10% of their energy source from coal and are getting around 50 or 60% of it from natural gas. So even they who are the largest creators of renewable energy still are not at the point where they are able to really have a big part of it being renewable. And again, the majority of this comes back. So is it fair to say that, to use another baseball analogy, the push to renewables is very much in the early innings. And so there could be a lot of big kind of movements or uncertainties, not only around carbon credits, but the whole energy situation in general. Yes, absolutely. It's definitely in the early innings. The technology to create the amount of energy that we need is absolutely there. I'm reading this great book right now called The Grid that's basically about the electrical grid here in the United States. And they've been talking a lot about how energy is produced. And there is no doubt that we're producing enough energy from a renewable source like the sun or even the wind that will be able to power us. The biggest issue is that we don't have a way of storing that energy right now that's economically viable. There are batteries out there. Tesla is one of the companies that are making some of these bigger grid batteries. They just don't have the storage capacity to get us where we need to go. And so that causes some bottlenecks on how we produce the energy that we need. And until that technology catches up, I think that's going to be a struggle for us to really move towards that, the energy, I guess, renewable energy sufficiency that we really want, you know, as a nation and as a world. And so we're just not there yet. And it doesn't mean it won't be in a few years. The rate of change in technology as we've seen with the semiconductor chips is just astounding. And some of the same laws apply. Anyway, so all that to say, there's a lot of energy that's out there that's being created. Unfortunately, we're not at a point where the renewable energy is where we want it to be. And that's kind of where the carbon credits start to come into play. Because what happens with the carbon credits, and Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong, but companies that want to create maybe greener sources of energy as well as greener sources of economics are creating green bonds that they are selling to companies that maybe aren't producing as much carbon. They're maybe producing more carbon credits that they want. And then they kind of use that as an offset to try to help create more opportunities for those companies. And and if I'm speaking incorrectly, tell me. It's like two parts. So the carbon credits is the thing that is bought and sold. So if I'm like an Exxon and I'm very <laughs> dirty and there's another company who's basically able to be a net positive to carbon instead of negative. So an example would be like if you're planting a bunch of trees and you're able to capture the carbon, then you're like carbon positive. You're okay. you're helping the environment. So the government will give you the carbon credits and then you can sell those to Exxon and then Exxon can make their account whole. The second part of it is the green bonds, which is companies who are carbon they have a certain carbon score they're able to get cheaper access to the bond market which makes it easier for them to grow because they have this cheaper source of capital those are kind of the two big themes that if i remember correctly from our conversation with marin could provide a lot of investment opportunities if you know where to look i know for me personally i stick to what's established and what i can see you know, when it comes to companies with stable cash flows and something that's very much in its infancy is hard to predict for anybody. So for me, I stay in the early innings. Or blah. <laughs> the opposite of that. So for me, I stick to the more established 
free cash flow generating companies and I have no special insight into those in the early innings. Yeah, I don't either really. I, I know that in my readings of different companies and whatnot, I am coming across different companies that are maybe mentioning that they have green bonds available. And I know Google was one of the companies recently that talked about a, a green bond issuance. And Bank would, of America too, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah. Bank of America. I would bet a lot of money that Microsoft has probably embraced to that idea as well. I don't know. I don't have any hard facts on that. This is speculation based on what I know about the company. But I know that Google and yeah, Bank of America are two for sure. And I would think that if, if you did a little Google research, you would probably be able to find some resources out there that would talk more about that extensively. I know this is something we've discussed before too, not on the air, but there is some of that's kind of being pulled back as as government spending gets shifted. So there is an additional risk that just because companies are free access to, if you want to call it carbon credit capital, there is no guarantee that that's going to happen in the future. So you do have to tread carefully. Yeah, exactly. It goes back knowing what you own and knowing what you're buying. And it's a little bit like because some of this is in early innings. I'm not saying that all of the companies out there are doing this, but you want to do a little research before you actually put your hard earned money behind something that may not be what you believe in, because there would be nothing worse than a company that's promoting some sort of carbon emission reductions or carbon credits or a green bond, and it turns out that they're not embracing that idea. Given that we're talking about Wall Street, you wouldn't be surprised if there's a shady character or two out there trying to take advantage of a situation like that. And so, again, it comes back to knowing what you own and doing a little research to ensure that what you are buying is the same. It kind of goes the same with the ESG ETFs that have been such the rage. You want to make sure that you're not buying an ESG ETF. The top five companies are... BP, Exxon, Mobile, and Home, and Home Depot or something, you know, that just are completely against everything that you're trying to invest in. So they're great ideas. And Marin was very bullish on the whole idea. And he wrote a great book about it, as well as the podcast are great resources to learn more about it, if that's something you're interested in. And he thinks it's going to be one of the more profitable trades that you could in- embrace over the next few years. So it's definitely something if you're interested in to to learn more about it, check out that episode with Marin. Yeah, it was great introduction to all of that and good basic, you know, foundation on how to think about energy. Mm-hmm. I think it's not, you could get really into the weeds. So I think you did a good job of uh, at least giving us some context there. And it's good advice for people to think about. Yeah, I could definitely get in the weeds on energy, but we'll, we'll move along from that. I don't want to bore people to death. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The second part of this great question here. So also, since I'm a beginner in looking for good long-term stocks and mutual funds, the jargon and important statistics are still a bit daunting. I'm sure that will go away with time. But for now, what couple of metrics do you feel are most important when researching a company to invest in? I know that everyone's approach and personal weight to each metric varies, but I'm just looking for a stepping off point. Any advice is appreciated. Thanks. So Andrew, what are your thoughts on the metrics for the second part of the question? I would always start, especially if you're a beginner, start on the price to earnings ratio. And it's not trying to tell you what a company is worth necessarily. It's just trying to give you a point of reference. So I'll give you an example. If you go try to buy a car right now, good luck, first of all. (laughs) There's huge shortage. And so as a result, the used car prices are a lot higher than they used to be. I mean, I've heard stories of people who are selling a car that they bought brand new and getting more money out of it 
than they did when they bought it brand new. So that's kind of like the state of affairs in the used car market. And so if you think about like if a dealership's selling a car for 30 grand and the KBB, which is kind of like, I don't know, how would you describe KBB to somebody who doesn't know what it is? It's kind of like, I guess, the the manual or the go-to guide to give you, I guess, guidance on what would be fair prices for different statuses of your car. Yeah, perfect. So kind of fair value estimate for cars. And so if you were to compare a car at a dealership, and if one dealership was selling a car at, I don't know, 35 grand and the car's KBB is 30 grand, and then you compare it to a dealership selling a car for 40 grand, the KBB is 39 grand, you kind of know which car would be a better deal based on its relationship to its KBB. You can think of the same kind of logic with the price to earnings ratio, where it's not so much that we're saying, oh man, this car is 50 grand, so it's expensive. It's like, well, compared to its value, it's actually pretty decent. The price to earnings does the same thing in the stock market because it compares to the earnings that a company generates and compares what's the price of the stock market for that stock and compare it to its value in that way. And then all the ratios, all the metrics kind of form some derivative of that. And so, I, you know, it's frustrating. I don't think it'll ever end. It's a common misconception. But when you say a stock's expensive, we don't mean you have to pay $1,000 to buy one share. We mean in relation to its actual value, it's either cheap or expensive. And I would start with the price earnings ratio. What would be a couple derivatives from that that you would recommend to somebody starting? Boy, that's a good question. I guess a couple other places I would look would be, one would be return on equity. And the other one would be return on invested capital. Now, so return on equity is a really easy way to measure the profitability of a company as well as how well it generates returns for shareholders. Because the basic way that the metric is set up is you look at the net income or the earnings of the company and you divide that by the shareholder equity of the company. And if the shareholder equity grows and the earnings grow, then you will generate more value for us, the shareholders or stakeholders, you know, people that are involved with the company. And so that's a great profitability ratio that you can look at. And so that's something that it kind of ties in with the earnings because they're kind of related because the earnings is the the measure of the price to earnings and that's how you're determining the value. So you look at the value of a company, but then you also want to look and see how profitable the company is and how well they do reinvesting those earnings to grow more value for the company. One of the things you have to think about with the stock market is even though Apple has created a fantastic investment and a product in the iPhone, they still have to reinvest in the company to generate more profit farther down the road, whether it's creating new products like the iWatch or the earbuds or whatever it may be, or even upgrading new versions of the iPhone. And so all that money has to reinvest and that's how the company grows the business. And return on equity is an easier way to measure that profitability. And if you see those kinds of metrics growing, so if return on equity for a company, let's say grows from 10 to 12 to 15% over a three or five year period, that's awesome because that means that the company is generating more revenue and more growth of the company by reinvesting well. And one of the jobs of a CEO, well, the, probably the arguably the most important job for a CEO is to grow the value of the company for shareholders, not for himself, but for shareholders. And using a metric like 
return on equity or return on invested capital are great ways to measure how well the company slash the CEO uses the money that they generate to grow the company. And so I guess in comparison to the price to earnings, return on equity is a good one, I think. It's a really a perfect compliment. And I think if that definition of return on equity is a little bit still unclear, Todd Wenning did an interview with us several months ago, and he had to really boil it down like as if I was a five-year-old, I could understand yeah. it. So that's a great one. He's talking about return on invested capital. You can use that logic on return on equity as well. And you know, you never want to like simplify things too much because sometimes the devil can be in the details. But if you really looked at Buffett's approach, and, and he's talked about it, I mean, his two big things when he looks at price and then the value of a company really comes down to like the price compared to earnings and then also how they reinvest their earnings in return on equity. He's talked about return on equity all the time. Mm-hmm. So there are different derivatives that if you're more advanced, you can move past price earnings, return on equity. The uh, price to free cash flow, which I use as a screening tool. That would be the next logical step after price earnings. And then ROIC, which you mentioned, return on invested capital, would be the logical next step to ROE. Those are really fantastic places to go when you're trying to kind of get your senses around how the market, why stocks are being priced a certain way, kind of how the quality of those stocks are. And then that's always a starting point. You, you never say, I'm going to buy this company because it has a low PE. I mean, that's a disaster. It's pretty common too. And you got to do a little more digging than that if, if you want to pick stocks yourself. You absolutely do. And I think another great idea to think about when you're looking at metrics and starting to try to get an idea of how they work and their relation to the financials of the company is to think about they're considered in finance world relative valuations or relative metrics. And the reason for that is because they're relative to other companies as well as to the performance of the particular company. In other words, you don't want to compare the PE of Aflac to the PE of Visa. They're not in the same universe. They operate completely differently and it's a complete different kind of relationship. And people are more investors are willing to pay more for the earnings of Visa than they are for Aflac. And it doesn't mean that either company is a better investment or a worse investment, but it just means that relative to each other, they're not comparable. So a better comparison would be to look at the PE of Visa and MasterCard as opposed to Visa or Aflac. In Aflac's case, you'd want to look at the PE of Prudential or State Farm or Allstate. And that would give you a better representation of how expensive or cheap that company is relative to its industry. And so that is a very important aspect of looking at metrics, particularly the PE ratio. Same applies to the price to book, the price to sales, the price to free cash flow. Any of those price-related metrics, you want to compare them to companies that are in the same industry or same sector. Otherwise, you're setting yourself up to pull the trigger on something that may actually be beaten down for a very good reason because it's the company is in a crapper and you don't want to invest in this. And likewise, you could be buying something that's super expensive and relative to the value of the company. And so that's a pro tip, if you will, to help stay away from overexposing yourself to companies that may be expensive or maybe too cheap for a reason. And so I think that's a great thing to keep in mind. Also keep in mind that price to earnings as well as any other metric are shortcuts 
to valuing a company. When you talk about price to earnings, you're not valuing a company. You're looking at a shortcut to valuing the company. And to value a company, you have to look at the cash flows of the company. and You have to go a lot deeper than what we're going to talk about today, because that's definitely a little more advanced stuff than I don't want to throw people off the scent. But a price to earnings and return on equity, all those metrics are great. Price to free cash flow, they're all great. But it, keep in mind that you need to use them relative to other companies as well as the performance of its own company. That's a perfect way to kind of tie it all together. Going back to that example between Aflac and Visa, something about insurance companies, they have to keep more cash on inside of the business because if 100 people get in an accident, for Aflac, they're going to have to come up with that capital. So actually, the government actually regulates that they keep a certain amount of cash in the business, whereas Visa needs very little cash to run their business. I mean, their network, their rails, they run continuously and with very little reinvestment. And so if you look at the ROEs, the return on equity for each industry, it's very, very different. And that's why you get the higher PE for something like a Visa because it's a lot easier for them to grow when they have lower capital requirements because they have higher ROE and similar thing to Aflac. So kind of getting those two kind of balancing concepts together, you can see how it tends to be really tied in a lot of industries and that explains a lot of the reason why you do see these discrepancies in price earnings and some of those other ones. All right, folks. Well, with that, we will go ahead and wrap up our conversation for today. I wanted to thank everybody for taking the time to send us those fantastic questions. Please keep them coming. We enjoy answering these questions and help give you guys a little bit better insight into how the stock market works and how you can make your money work for you. So without any further ado, I'll go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. I'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.